and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the seventh program in our new series to be broadcast this year at this time on the second Monday of each month. We'll feature topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about the Tea Party. What can we learn from them about civic engagement? We'll be discussing the Tea Party movement, who are its members, what do they believe, and the Tea Party's impact on elections and governing, what it means for civic participation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Before I introduce our guest today, let me remind you that it's Pledge Week here on WERU-FM. If you enjoy this kind of programming, call toll-free 800-643-6273 and make a pledge to WERU-FM. That's 800-643-6273. So now to our guests. Um, our guests are both in the studio today. Joining us at Theta Scotchpole is the Victor... S. Thomas, Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Theta's work covers an unusually broad spectrum of topics in both comparative politics and American politics, all of which seem to be of interest to me. Um, her new book with graduate student Vanessa Williamson is The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism. Republican Conservatism. Welcome, Theta. Thank you for joining us today. It's nice to be here. And also joining us in the studio today is Amy Freed. Amy is Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. Her research focuses on the history and political uses of public opinion polling in the United States. Amy's recent book, Pathways to Polling, Crisis Cooperation and the Making of Public Opinion Professions, explains the rise of polling in America as connected to the growth of government, business, and the mass media. Welcome, Amy, and thank you for coming in today. It's great to be here. So let's get started. The Tea Party movement seemed to spring up spontaneously in the early days of the Obama administration, January, February 2009, in reaction, it seemed, to economic stabilization measures, TARP, the bank bailouts, proposed in the face of the global financial crisis that had emerged in the waning days of the Bush Bush administration during the fall of 2008. Since then, the movement has played a strong role in shaping the conservative agenda and the outcome of elections in 2010 continuing into 2012. Theta, let's start from the beginning. When did the Tea Party movement start? How did it start? What was the motivation that got it going? It got going just weeks into Barack Obama's historic presidency, and the spark that lit the fire uh, was uh, a rant on... uh, television by Rick Santelli in which he was denouncing the mortgage assistance uh, measures of the uh, Obama administration invoking the founding fathers and calling for a Tea Party revolt uh, by people who wanted to take our country back. That take our country back, we're losing our country kind of cry spread among conservatives who were very disgruntled as uh, Democrats moved into Washington, D.C., much as liberals had been years before when all Republicans moved in. And uh, so the cry for Tea Party uh, demonstrations was taken up. Uh, Fox News and right-wing talk radio gave it a big boost. 
And over the following months, there were street demonstrations featuring uh, older white people carrying signs denouncing Obama as a communist, a socialist, and a Nazi all at once. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the spring and summer of 2009 through the next year, what we documented eventually as about 900 local tea parties were organized by some of the most active tea partiers across the country. What do you remember from that time, Amy? Um, well, it, uh, it's, uh, I remember very oppositional kind of anti-government sensibility, which to step back a minute is, is consistent with certain parts of uh, American public opinion where people tend to dislike government in general terms, but often actually like uh, many of the programs, uh, certainly the major programs that government funds and supports. So who are typical Tea Party members? What's their sort of demographic profile and what do they believe in? Okay, well, uh, my co-author and I we came at this a couple of ways. We pulled together all the national surveys that were available that help us get a re- representative sense of that. And we also went out and interviewed people and observed local meetings in three parts of the country. And the picture of who grassroots Tea Partiers are is very consistent. They're older, white, conservative-minded people, slightly above average in income and education, or, uh, but that's probably because they're older. They are, at the grassroots at least, middle-class people for the most part, not super wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should underline, though, that we need to think of the Tea Party as involved being several different parts working together. There are the grassroots Tea Partiers, and we'll be talking about them a lot because they're the participatory part of the Tea Party. But there are also long-standing. Uh, very wealthy, professionally run advocacy groups uh, that have been pushing things like privatization of Social Security and Medicare, anti-environmentalism, no regulation on business, lower and lower taxes for the super wealthy. Those are not new agenda items, but some of those organizations jumped on the Tea Party, sometimes relabeling themselves, sometimes just sending all kinds of encouragement to the grassroots but always using the grassroots as a sort of photogenic backdrop for them to push the policies they've been pushing all along. And and Paul Ryan would be a very good example of that. He's a very privileged man. Uh, He's not uh, like the grassroots Tea Partiers in many ways, and he's sponsored by some of the wealthiest ultra-right forces in America. Hmm. So, I mean, you hear this term astroturfing kicked around. I think it's generally defined as an organized big money agenda that's designed to look like a grassroots movement. Is that what we're talking about or is it something a little different from that? Well, to me, and I'd love to hear what Amy thinks about this, astroturf usually refers to um, deliberate creation of the appearance of grassroots protesters. It's, it's actually, you can hire firms to do this, and corporations do. In this case, uh, the, the, the ultra-right-wing, we call them the roving billionaires in our book, uh, were handed an opportunity by actual grassroots protesters. So it's, it's better to think of the Tea Party as having both a genuine bottom-up component and certainly this kind of top-down component. But one didn't create the other. They just came together to pursue common objectives, which include getting rid of Barack Obama, 
making sure that Democrats make no headway on any policies, and making sure that the Republican Party, which is really their chief object, is full of uncompromising, uh, hardline uh, conservatives. Hmm. Amy? Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. There's, you know, the Tea Party has a sort of mass participatory uh, element of it, but it also has this more elite-driven uh, organizational part of it. And I w- would also say that um, the Republican Party has been moving towards the right over the last decades, and this gives it a major, major push. All of that energy from the Tea Party and the funding from the big funders is having a major impact on the Republican Party. Uh, You're seeing uh, moderate Republicans or even really solidly conservative Republicans losing their primaries and being replaced by much more conservative Tea Party-oriented candidates and elected officials. Can you give us a couple examples of that? Sure. Well, you could go back to um, 2010 when the sitting senator from Utah, Robert Bennett, was defeated, not in a primary, actually. It was in uh, the party caucus. And um, uh, recently, this is something that I think has been you know, given very little attention just last week in Kansas, uh, there were a series of moderate Republican state legislators who were defeated. And this, uh, Kansas is the home of the Koch brothers and Koch industries. And they put in a huge amount of money into these state legislative elections. I mean, we know that uh, a lot of people don't pay that close attention to primaries and state legislative elections. They don't show up and vote. And a lot of money uh, was used to push against these people and eight moderate Republicans uh, lost. And this was actually also sponsored by the governor of Kansas, Sam Brownback. When he got elected, he said, well, we're going to make Uh, Kansas, a conservative state. It's never truly been a conservative state. Well, it really has been a conservative state, but what he meant by that was uh, something really quite different, much further to the right. And he uh, ran against uh, resistance from these particular individuals for his tax plan, which was a really Ryan-esque kind of tax plan, and that it cut tax rates at the top, but then it also ended a lot of deductions that are helpful um, and uh, to, for middle class people, uh, so it really sort of turned around the, um, the the tax code, and they had pushed back against that. And he uh, he went out and you know uh, ran a uh, sort of uh, campaign against them, and eight of these uh, folks lost. So mm. you know, and there there are many other examples, but. Um, uh, it happens both at the national level and at the state level. So, I mean, it's interesting because it sounds like the grassroots movement sprung up without a lot of financial infrastructure, a lot of resource, and then the, the money sort of overlaid on top of what was already there. I mean, where is the money coming from and how has it helped the Tea Party be more successful? I mean, how is it really working? Well, you know, when we went out and attended local Tea Party meetings in Virginia, various parts of New England, and in Arizona, and talked with grassroots Tea Party uh, people, uh, the Koch brothers were not sending them checks. Uh, Local Tea Parties uh, were funding themselves, for the most part, the same way 
a Protestant church would. You know, there's a basket there. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe there are some ladies who make baked goods. There were When I visited the York County Constitutionalists here in Maine, they had some wonderful baked goods, which I bought some of. And they usually have a concession table where they're selling, you know, Sarah Palin biographies, wonderful little tea party pins made in China always. Mm-hmm. But and, and the local... The local Tea Party will get a take on that, mm-hmm. but this is not big budget stuff. And in fact, the Walls, uh, the the Washington Post survey of local Tea Parties found that they didn't have big budgets. So the money is really not going to the grassroots activists. It's going into the primary elections in the Republican Party and general elections, but especially the primaries in the Republican Party. Because, and I don't really think the word conservative means much here anymore. These are radical extremists who are taking over parts of the Republican Party. And Amy's right. Often it's done at the state level in low turnout elections. The activists will turn out, but uh, the money is going to run ads to sort of uh, obfuscate the issues for middle-of-the-road voters. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's certainly what's going on now in the 2012 general election, too. They're going to be billions of dollars. Now, where does that money come from? It comes from certain sectors of the the very wealthy class in this country. We're talking billionaires here. And uh, certain business sectors, particularly petrochemicals, the carbon industries. But it doesn't really come from Main Street businesses. I mean, I'm not saying they're not involved in lots of conservative politics, but they've been outflanked by... Uh, this kind of um, uh, ultra-right money. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, we're beginning to see tensions between Tea Party Republicans and Main Street business-backed Republicans over things like whether you're going to fund the highway bill or the agriculture bill or the kind of things that really business has taken for granted in this country. Mm -hmm. I saw you moving to speak, Amy. Go ahead. Well, um, it, yeah, in fact, I was going to mention transportation. I mean, that's one of those things where you have large government contracts and businesses benefit from them. And of course, they also hire a, a lot of uh, workers. And um, that's a place where uh, you've had um, people who are often Republicans and would call themselves conservatives, but certainly support those kinds of activities from the government and the businesses want that kind of funding. And then, uh, but then within Congress, the the Tea Party side of it, you know, really wants the government to be doing um, almost nothing at all. Uh, Let me just also mention something about the money in politics, because I don't think we're seeing it exactly in the same way in Maine, in that we haven't had these uh, highly contested primaries where, you know, Tea Party candidates have have come in, uh, at least certainly not to the same extent. But, you know, we did have in 2010 a lot of money that that came in at the very end of the election, and a lot of people think were very important in turning at least – a number of Senate races, and uh, I, I would not be surprised to see that uh, again. I think we will have um, a lot of advertising that will come in uh, towards the end, and it won't be something that, in a way, will be that easy to see. Some of it will be television, some of it will be mailers, uh, but you know, a little bit of money goes a long way in, in, in the Maine. state of Maine. And we're unusual because we have legislative redistricting after this election, and where most states have already done their legislative redistricting. 
Late listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the Tea Party. What can we learn about civic engagement from them? Our guests are Theta Scotchpole, Victor S. Thomas, Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, and Amy Freed, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. This is Pledge Drive Week at WERU. You can call 800-643-6273. If you like this kind of programming, call that number and make a pledge to WERU Community Radio, 800-643-6273. Let's get back to the Tea Party grassroots chapters and talk a little bit more about what they believe. I mean, what is really motivating people to turn out and remain affiliated in these local chapters? Well, Vanessa Williamson and I went about finding answers to that a little bit differently than um, other investigators. Uh, Most uh, investigations either ask questions in national opinion polls, which take you only so far because there'll be a question like, do you believe in government spending? And you get a no to that. But what does that really mean? Uh, And there's also been a fair amount of journalists who dropped in at – the most public demonstrations and observed and talked to the angriest people. What we did was to try to build up enough trust in various parts of the country. Not easy for two Mm. Harvard-based researchers, (laughs) by the way, because professors are a suspect suspect category in Tea Party land. Uh, But by showing respect for fellow citizens and, and, you know, just being very careful to listen – we, we ended up doing one-on-one interviews in depth with people in which we just asked them to tell us how they came to the Tea Party, uh, what they expected from it, and then got around eventually to some questions like, well, you've told us what you don't like about government. Now, what do you like? One guy said, well, I didn't see that one coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they all answered. And uh, the answers ranged from things like the one woman who said that when she went to Washington to demonstrate against the Affordable Care Act, she was so impressed by the beauty of the buildings that it made her very proud. And another woman talked about the national parks and how much she liked them and did not seem to realize that the Republicans she was backing were slashing the funding for the national parks. Uh, But we also, if they didn't bring it up, would ask them about Social Security and Medicare because... Uh, You know, these are older, white, conservative men and women who either are on Social Security and Medicare or they're getting veterans' benefits. In some cases in Virginia in particular, they were military veterans and spouses. And people said, well, sure, we believe in those. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, they're just like most Americans. Uh, And national polls also show that 70% of Tea Parties compared to 80% of everybody else, believes in these programs. So they're on the same wavelength. We only had one person say she didn't believe in Social Security and wouldn't be collecting it. Everybody said, we worked all our lives, we've earned these benefits, which is what all Americans will tell you outside of Washington, D.C. and New York City, uh, where the elites are take a, a poo-poo attitude toward these uh, programs. Uh, so in that sense, uh, that's not what they mean by not liking government spending. And they are aware that these are expensive tax-supported programs. But what they don't like is spending on people they call moochers oh. or freeloaders. Mm-hmm. Those are the words they used to us. 
And we listened very carefully to find out who the moochers and the freeloaders are. And partly it wouldn't be surprising in the history of right-wing populism. They are often, at least implicitly, minority, low-income people or low-income people who are not seen as working hard. Illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants came up all the time. And in fact, in our interviews, they seemed more an object of fear and resentment than even low-income people uh, uh, or African-Americans uh, because they use services like education and health care that real Americans have to pay taxes for. That's what Tea Partiers believe. And the final category of moochers and freeloaders was really the biggest surprise to us, young people. Often examples from their own families were given of a grandson or a grandniece who hadn't gotten a job, was living at home with mother and dad, who just whose life wasn't unfolding according to the script these older Americans were used to. And instead of seeing that as the new realities of family life and the job market, they were blaming people. Uh, and young people were often seen as being on welfare if they took a Pell Grant to go to college, for example, or couldn't get a job and were supplementing their income with food stamps. So um, it's kind of a, a perfect storm here in their view of these moochers who are the usual suspects from the past combined with undocumented immigrants and wayward young people. That's so interesting. What was it about the dawning of the Obama administration? I mean, these factors that you name have been part of American life for quite a while. What was it about the dawn of the Obama administration that catalyzed such intense um, feeling? Well, let's remember that uh, whenever uh, one party takes the presidency and the House and the Senate at the same time, that's usually both discouraging and potentially galvanizing for the hardcore supporters on the other side. So uh, that's number one, and that's in a way a regular occurrence, if only occasionally, in American politics. But um, the other part of it was that this, of course, coincided with a big economic downturn, with the sense that the country was in crisis. So this all-Democrat government was seen by Tea Party years as a real threat to do things, and then you add to that the Fox News, uh, Tea Partiers watch Fox News six to eight hours a day, many of us, them prod, proudly told us. And they're getting a regular diet of misinformation and hatred uh, and racial fear on Fox. That's just the way it is. I didn't watch Fox, but Vanessa did, and she reported back a lot of the stuff that we were hearing people saying had been on the week before. Then the other big factor here is is Obama himself. Now, you know, for two people from Cambridge, Massachusetts, this was the hardest for us. We really tried. We liked and admired many of the Tea Partiers we met as citizens, very active citizens. But we had to understand why they were so angry about somebody who in our hometown is seen as mild-mannered and, if anything, not aggressive enough. So... We listened very carefully, and I all I can say is that Obama represents the perfect storm from a Tea Party perspective. He's young. Two million young people went to Washington to cheer for him 
one woman said in our interviews, all I hear from the young people is Obama, Obama, Obama. And you could hear the big demonstrations in her mind. He's a professor, not a good category at all, because it's seen as elitist people who are haughty and look down on ordinary Americans. He's a Democrat, and Democrats were described to us as a combination of people on welfare, people who want to have illegal immigrants given the right to vote, and government employees who are sucking the lifeblood out of real Americans. That was the Democratic Party. I had to sit there with a poker face during that kind of description. So you put all that together, and then the final thing, the foreign father. Nobody would say to us in so many words that they thought he wasn't a real American. But they invoked his middle name, and they would say things like, I just can't understand him. I can't relate to him. He doesn't seem like a real American, or he doesn't seem like he understands America. So think about it. It's all those things together. He becomes a symbol of all that they fear about politics in a changing society. Do you want to comment on that, Amy? Uh, well, I think that's very well said. The only thing I'd add is we could go back also to the Clinton administration where you had a very strong right-wing oppositional kind of attitude and, you know, sets of behaviors, you know, even to the point of the impeachment. Um, and lots of really wild stories being spread both about Bill and Hillary Clinton. So um, in a way, it's not that similar uh, from from what we saw back then, um, dissimilar. Yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah. I think that's right. Mm. Uh, there's something about um, uh, in this period. There's something about the most conservative-minded Americans that doesn't accept the legitimacy of a democratic party government, mm-hmm. even if it's elected. That's kind of worrisome. I mean, to me that. That was the most unsmall democratic thing I heard, this intolerance, this unwillingness to accept that there are other citizens that might not think the way you do, that also have the right to vote and also have the right to win elections if they can make a majority appeal. On the other hand, Tea Partiers at the grassroots at least are model citizens in other respects. They really study up on the issues. They learned the rules of the Republican Party so they could go in and take over local party meetings. They followed the legislative bills in the state legislature, the national legislature. There's nothing wrong with that. That's Mm -hmm. what good citizens are supposed to do. It's so interesting because when I hear you talk about the things that they really focused on and that were bothering them, none of it really seemed to have to do with bank bailouts, for example. So it's just so interesting that it catalyzed around that time, it didn't really have anything to do with that at all. Well, it did in one respect. Um, I mean, we didn't have very many grassroots Tea Partiers talking to us very much about bank bailouts. Right. But when they did, we tried to listen to see whether the hypothesis that exists on the left was borne out, which is that they're angry about the same things that many on the left are angry about. And the answer to that is they're not. Right. Because uh, they may not like bank bailouts any better than, say, a progressive on the left doesn't like them. But the progressive on the left blames the bankers and the Tea Partiers blame government. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't hear a single critical word about business behavior of any kind hmm. from any Tea Partier in any of our interviews. Really interesting. 
So interesting. So how do they, how are these chapters holding together? I mean, it's been a few years. Are they still pretty cohesive at the grassroots level? Well, you know, people will have to look at that state by state. But what we did do in our research, in addition to visiting a few, you can't visit them all, we we teamed up with a couple of undergraduates and did a survey of all of the local tea parties according to their websites. And by the spring of 2011, when we finalized this, most of them did have local websites, sometimes with the aid of grants from like Tea Party Patriots, which was one of the umbrella organizations. Uh, and that's when we found about 900 tea parties. So this spring, this or at least this winter, we went back to see if they were still active following the 2010 election when they had such a triumph in helping to elect uh, Tea Party Republicans. And what we found is that two-thirds of them were showing clear signs of continuing activity. That's a lot. It is. Uh, particularly following a, uh, a big electoral victory, which could cause some Tea Partiers, as one Virginia organizer told me to say, well, we've won mm. and I'll go home. Uh, they're keeping active, and I think most of their activity is out of the limelight now, but it's very focused on the Republican Party. Seriously? Yep. Let's take another station break here and come back to how they've been politically effective. But listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Let me remind you once again, it's Pledge Week here on WERU. If you enjoy this kind of public interest program, call 1-800-643-6273 and make your pledge today. Our guests this morning are Theta Scotchpole, Victor S. Thomas, Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, and our own Amy Freed, Professor of Political Science here at the University of Maine. Our topic today is the Tea Party and what can we learn about civic engagement. And we've just been talking about who the Tea Party members are, what interests motivated them to form Tea Party local chapters, how they've coalesced over time. And I want to pursue the topic a little bit more about how effective they've been and how they've actually worked here in Maine and nationally to bring about policy changes legislatively and electorally. Uh, well, I, you know, in, in Maine, it's not clear to me how active uh, Tea Party groups are right now, although they certainly have had associations with Governor LePage. And uh, I, I think there's a degree of overlap between them and the Ron Paul supporters who came in and took over the Republican uh, state convention and are now having this fight with the more mainstream elements of the state Republican Party about whether they can send their their convention delegates. Um, let me also just mention that I uh, recently published this little ebook with uh, Professor Jim Melcher at UMaine Farmington, and we had collected a lot of quotes from Tea Party governors. And one of the things that we noticed that um, was that there, there there were some differences between some of the things that that some of those governors talked about than that you see at least uh, reported about Tea Party groups. And, you know, certainly they had the same kinds of emphases on taxes and on government spending, but there was a strong element of them, not in every state, but in many states, um, on things like um, religion, and on uh, abortion, birth control. I mean, we now, you know, do see a lot of that in, in some of the policies, uh, not so much in Maine at this point. Uh, but, 
you know, there that was that's another aspect. And of course, that is something that's part of the Republican Party, a very, uh, as it's been moving right, a very strong social conservative element. And so, you know, in being anti-government in terms of economic issues and wanting a smaller footprint for government, that doesn't hold true when it comes to regulation of reproductive choices. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we paid very careful attention to both in our fieldwork observations and in our uh, analysis of the national survey data was uh, this uh, variation among Tea Party uh, participants and sympathizers between people who are in many ways Christian conservatives who jumped into the Tea Party phenomenon, uh, who had been organized at the grassroots in other ways before, uh, and uh, libertarians. Now, uh, nationally, there's reason to believe that it's about um, 50, 50, or maybe 60% social conservative, 40% more libertarian-minded. The libertarian-minded are often secular. So this is quite a disparate set of people coexisting, and we found them coexisting in the same local tea parties, particularly in Virginia. And that was really interesting to watch how that was handled because, uh, you know, attitudes toward whether the government has a role in the bedroom or in defining uh, marital behavior that they really vary between the more libertarian people and the more uh, uh, social conservative uh, 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 Christian fundamentalists. And so in the Charlottesville Tea Party, for example, in Virginia, I attended a meeting one night and the organizer was conducting a discussion, which was particularly interesting, about what their priorities should be after the 2010 electoral victories. Most Tea Party meetings consist of lectures by outsiders, but this was an actual discussion. And, uh, you know, people were throwing out issues. Uh, One man wanted the local police to round up all the immigrants, and uh, he he was very upset that the local police had told him that that was going to cost him too much money, and he didn't care. So that's an example of that wasn't fiscal conservatism. That was the crackdown. Uh, and, And we found that everywhere they wanted to round up immigrants and send them back. There was no a light footprint of government when it came to to immigrants um, who were undocumented. Um, and one woman raised her hand partway through the discussion, filled with everything from supporting homeschooling to, uh, you know, taking up the tax issues to making sure that environmentalists didn't make any headway in Virginia. That was a big, big emphasis in the Virginia Tea Parties. One woman raised her hand to report how delighted she was that the newly elected Republican Senate had just voted new rules that would close down all of the clinics for poor women in the state by requiring them to turn into hospitals if they wanted to give uh, do anything about abortion. And uh, a wave of emotion swept through the room. So this was a Christian conservative priority, and it was getting a lot of... The next day, the local organizer, a lovely woman who I really liked contacted me to say, you know, that's not what the Tea Party's really about, Hmm. she said. We stick to fiscal issues because it's easier to get agreement on those. But I had seen with my own eyes uh, that that wasn't true in that meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And 
in some tea parties, uh, the, the, the tension between these two strands has broken the tea party apart. It's either caused one group to withdraw, usually the more secular people, or um, one tea party leader told me about a f- what she heard about out west. She heard a local tea party on a national conference call say that the tensions had gotten so great in her district that she had created two tea parties, each of which met every week. One was the Christian Tea Party, and the other was the real Tea Party. Huh. Uh, so I think you can conclude from this that the local organizers have tried hard not to have this just be a relabeled Christian conservatism because they want to bring in more people. But uh, Christian conservatives are people of intense views and strong networks, and they have often moved in. And I think that's why we see many of these elected officials, particularly in the states, outside of New England, actually pursuing draconian regulatory steps once they come into so, so strong that it's really causing some of the elected Republicans nationally to, to realize that they risk losing female votes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is so interesting. So let's talk a little bit about how the the Tea Party chapters have organized to actually have an effect on public policy and, um, and on the Republican Party. I think I heard you interviewed on another show where you talked about how effectively they know how to organize, call, lobby, that they've been very effective in that way. And I think, as I remember it, you contrasted that with how more pro- progressives um, have a different attitude towards how um, legislation works and how to impact it. So maybe you could just recapitulate that a little bit as a starting point. Well, it was a very funny moment in Virginia when we were interviewing Tea Party activists. My 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 co-author and I realized that there was a huge contrast between the liberal meetings we've attended in our capacities as citizens in Cambridge and the, what we were hearing about these meetings in Virginia among the Tea Partiers that Liberal meetings we attend consist of people getting up and grandstanding about national policy and then saying, well, if the president would just give a speech on this, uh, everything would be all right. Uh, Whereas the local tea parties, they are very focused on the legislative process. Uh, They impressed us. They knew the numbers of the bills, which usually only political scientists who study Congress or state legislatures know the numbers of the bills. They knew when they were passing through particular committees and who to contact. They often would have somebody in the local Tea Party whose job it was to monitor all legislation that was coming up in a given area and alert everybody when it would be good to email their representatives or go to the state house or in Virginia they could also pile into automobiles and go to Washington, mm-hmm. uh, which they did from time to time. So, um, you know, I think their view of politics, and this has been true really of conservative populists in this country for a while, has focused much more on local and state politics and legislative politics, whereas liberals have tended to focus much more on, you know, the presidency or uh, uh, professional activities uh, in government and and in advocacy groups. And frankly, the conservatives have it right. They know how to reorganize things and how to affect actual legislation. And and these Tea Party people were carrying that on and intensifying it. 
Were they well informed about the content of the bills that they were working on? Well, they were well informed about the legislative content and the provisions. They were not well informed about uh, 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 government in general. They believed utterly unrealistic and untrue things. For example, that the health care law had the death panels or uh, I was told by Tea Partiers that it had a 3.2 percent uh, real estate tax that was to fund all of Obamacare. And, you know, uh, no, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I, I've written a book on that, and I know it's not true. Uh, one Tea Partier told us that the government was planning to take over the thermostats in everyone's house and uh, force us all to maintain a certain temperature. And when we went back and looked at Fox News the week before, those ideas had been thrown out there. Oh. So uh, we know where some of that's coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and and I mean, they've managed to stay cohesive after their electoral victories, after um, some of these issues have, um, you know, sort of peaked and crested or whatever. And I, I didn't really hear you talk about the Affordable Care Act as part of the founding story. I mean, that wasn't where they came from, but they have been active on that oh, issue. Oh, you bet. They're angry about it. They believe false things about it. But we didn't find that to be necessarily... If I, if I had to say what came across the strongest to me in personal interviews, it was the anger about immigrants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that we saw that in the Republican primaries. Remember when yeah. Mitt Romney went after Rick Perry for being too nice to immigrant young people in Texas by allowing them to go to, to, to college? Well, that was a play for the Tea Party base. And I think Romney knew this. His, his handlers told him this is a popular issue. Yeah, and I I would add to uh, go back and look at some of the demographic elements of this, that the groups that the Tea Party has described are most upset with young people and and immigrants, that, you know, that there's there's a real difference between young people and old people in this country. The older people are just much more white than younger people. We have a a population that's changed quite a bit, and there's a number of states who are either uh, majority-minority or moving towards there very rapidly, and and that may be something that's somewhat unsettling. So those two elements of, you know, young people and minority people, sometimes people who are immigrants or at least from immigrant families, I, I think that's, you know, that's something that's very important. I'd, I'd also say that, um, you know, to give a little bit more of a main perspective, that in a way the Tea Party has, seems to have been pretty quiet. Maybe they're uh, happy with the direction of, of state government. And also that we have had organizations that, that from the left that have been monitoring legislation that where people know the the names of the bills or the numbers of the bills and that organize people to be a part of the political process sometimes showing up to testify certainly contacting legislators which is a very important thing uh, for folks to do uh, so uh, you know we have we have a little different sort of balance of power I mean the really there have been groups that have built very effective infrastructures within the state. One of them certainly would be the Maine People's Alliance, 
which, of course, the League of Women Voters, uh, you folks uh, partnered with last year in order to restore Election Day registration, along with a number of other groups in that coalition. So um, as a state, I think we're a little more balanced when it comes to citizen involvement and citizen activity across the ideological spectrum. That was sort of what I was going to ask next, was to sort of contrast this conservative populist movement with what is or is not or has ever happened on the liberal side in terms of organizing at the grassroots level. I mean, why has this worked so successfully, and do we have similar counterexamples uh, on the other side of the spectrum? Well, let me just say that I agree with Amy's characterization of Maine. I think Maine has a pretty strong civic culture and quite a, a range of citizen participation and organization, and, and it is not my impression that the Tea Party uh, ever got particularly strong at, in Maine. Uh, I I know I spent a little bit of time uh, clicking around to the various uh, websites of Tea Party groups, and uh, the Tea Party seemed factionalized in Maine. There were some disputes between Pete the Carpenter and some of the other uh, leaders. Um, Everybody seemed to like the kick-ass style of politics that Governor LePage represents, and I would say that Tea Partiers in general like kick-ass. They like politicians who throw it in the face of liberals, or even moderates for that matter. Uh, so, um, And the Tea Party meeting I attended in Maine was selling sweatshirts that showed Olympia Snow rolling down the side of a mountain, and it, they were called snow removal. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were no fan of Collins or uh, S- uh, Snow or or of the moderate Republicans in the state legislature who criticized Governor LePage mm-hmm. uh, when he did for the nth time his various insults to liberal groups that, that one woman was quite enraged that the governor would criticize, rep- uh, would be criticized by Republicans. So I think that the Tea Party is not the dominant thing in Maine Republicanism, not even the way it has a presence in New Hampshire Republican Party. And probably Amy's right that a lot of them are really Ron Paul people whose real loyalty is to libertarianism. Uh, Go ahead, Amy, chime in. Yeah, the only thing I'd add about the Ron Paul supporters who did take over the state Republican convention is that they themselves are really diverse. I mean, uh, I was uh, following some of the activities that day through Twitter, which um, actually there's a great main politics hashtag if you're on Twitter. It's ME Politics, where uh, it, there, the lot was going on and people were posting things. But I mean, you had at that uh, convention supporting Ron Paul, Michael Heath, who is an a very, very uh, strongly uh, social conservative individual. I mean, he was too much uh, that way for the, uh, you know, for some of the organizations that were Christian right organizations in the state. His rhetoric was so strong. Um, And he was there supporting Ron Paul, but you also certainly had libertarian uh, individuals. So, I mean, there's that sort of tension, but Ron Paul became a vehicle for this uh, broader set of, of individuals with, you know, kind of varied politics. Um, and, you know, running against Snow um, when she was still a um, candidate, you had um, Scott Danboys, who's a social conservative, 
and also Andrew Ian Dodge, who is going to be on the ballot as as an independent Senate candidate, and he's really much more of a libertarian. And they'd probably both call themselves Tea Party supporters. Mm-hmm. I think they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many Tea Party supporters do you think there are nationwide? Well, our estimate. Look, here's where it gets tricky. What do you mean by that? Now, if you mean somebody who tells a pollster, yeah, I sympathize with the Tea Party, it ranged up from a quarter to a third at one point in the early going when a lot of Americans didn't even know what a Tea Party person was. A quarter to a third of a... The whole national population. Okay, okay. But... In the national polls, that very loose kind of sympathy has now shrunk down below 20%. The people who don't like the Tea Party exceed those who sympathize with it. And that's become steadily truer as as the Tea Party's style of politics and its political preferences have become more obvious to Americans. If we're talking about hardcore activists who really do things, People who organize the local groups, who attend the local meetings, we estimated about 200,000 across the country. Now, that's not very many in one respect, but in another respect, to organize up to 900 local groups and keep them going for a while, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's the thing I'm so curious about. How have they done it, and what can other groups who aspire to... Uh, level of civic engagement, learn from their experience? What can we emulate about what they've been so successful doing? Well, you know, that's a good question because the Occupy Wall Street movement for the most part is has not uh, found it as easy or maybe even as much of a goal to organize regularly meeting groups. Most tea parties meet once a month. Some tea parties meet once a week. Um, I doubt that very many of those exist now. Um It's volunteer labor, and a lot of it was coming from semi-retired people or people who were in small businesses or people who were stay-at-home moms. Now, I want to be careful to say that these people were all very busy. I'm not suggesting that they were in any way uh, had too much time on their hands. Mm -hmm. But what they do have that's very important if you're going to have a group that meets regularly is flexibility in the use of their time. And I think a lot of um, um, groups on the center and the left include people who may be full-time professionals or younger adults whose time is not as flexible. So I'm not sure how easy it is to emulate the achievement of creating local tea parties. Now, how they did it, they often used Meetup, which is a website that enables you to communicate. They used local newspapers. We found in our research that the organizers often did not know one another before they founded tea parties, which surprised us. It really did because we thought, well, they would be people who already had connections who were just transferring them. But many cases, they learned about each other at a local demonstration or they learned about each other uh, calling into the local right-wing talk radio program. And right-wing talk radio is an important civic force in every community. Often the uh, radio hosts would be uh, on the organizing committees for local Tea Party events. That's so interesting. Do progressive groups have success in a similar vein? I don't think they have as much infrastructure spread out across the country. Mm -hmm. They tend to be more concentrated in cities, around university communities. um, And they often, we know that Occupy Wall Street is mainly young adults 
mm-hmm. whose, whose uh, uh, time might be different. But I will say that the most important difference I see with Occupy Wall Street is, unlike the Tea Party, they did not target the Democratic Party. They may have voted for the Democratic Party candidates usually. That's what they told my students who did some research on Occupy groups. But they sometimes didn't vote at all, and they tended to think parties weren't important. Tea Partiers are very, very skeptical of the Republican Party establishment. They're very resentful of it, uh, but they are not confused about the importance of elections, and they know that taking over the Republican Party and making Republican Party politicians do what they want is very important. Amy? Uh, in, in many cases, these kinds of infrastructure elements like local party committees are just wide open. There's not that many people who show up. Uh, it's the same group of people who tend to be involved. And really, if there's uh, some set of people who want to have an impact, they can come in and they can take it over fairly quickly. And, you know, this is something that's been going on for a long time uh, by social conservatives uh, evangelical groups and various sweeps, some different uh, periods where they've been, you know, more active than others that come in and, and take over the infrastructure of the local Republican Party. They start electing people often at the local me- level, maybe the school boards, city councils, things like that. And then those people have a certain degree of experience. They learn more about how to run things. They get more contacts more people know about them, and then they start to move up. And, and um, you know, it, it does seem that on the left, there's more of an attitude of, oh, well, um, you know, that's sort of traditional politics. It's at least some people that they're not as interested in going in and having that kind of impact. Although I would point again to, in, in Maine, a group like the Maine People's Alliance, which not only organizes people, but which has... MPA um, members and staff members who are in the legislature now or who are running for office. Um, In Bangor, there's Adam Good, who's a state rep, um, up in Orono running, uh, Ryan Tipping Spitz, both uh, involved with the Maine People's Alliance. So um, I don't know if they've, you know, done the same moving into the party uh, committees and taking over that infrastructure sort of thing, but they certainly have gone out and uh, fielded candidates and then managed to elect those candidates and have an impact. Right. So interesting. We're coming to the end of our show. We've got just a few minutes left here. Um, I want to remind our guests, uh, our listeners, that this is WERU and Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. We're talking about the Tea Party. Our guests are Theta Scotchpole, the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, and Amy Freed, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. I want to give you each a couple of minutes to make some parting thoughts to our listeners about the Tea Party and civic participation, um, what it's meant for politics in this country in the last three or four years, which is as long as it's been around, and what you think it's going to mean going forward. Who wants to go first? Well, I I will, because I think Amy should have the last word here. She knows about the main scene. In our book, we looked at uh, one piece of evidence of Tea Party impact. We looked at um, the kind of ideological position of the members of the House of Representatives in in, in 2009 and 2010 versus after the 2010 election. And um, the Republican Party was already 
at its most conservative on some quantitative measures that uh, political scientists use before the election and completely separate from Democrats who tended to be not entirely on the left but then left in the middle and then the Republicans were pretty crowded toward the conservative right. After the election, the Republican Party practically fell off the scale compared to anything political scientists have ever measured. Uh, and the leap to the very, very far right was almost entirely accounted for by Tea Party endorsed and supported members of the House of Representatives. That's what brought us to a situation in which a large block of members in the House were willing to let the United States go into fiscal default a year ago and cost billions of dollars of economic growth in this country because they were so determined to throw sand into the wheels of government. Uh, I think I would say that the Tea Party has succeeded in taking a party, the Republican Party, that had already moved very far to the right and in an anti-government direction. Uh, it's now moved it even further in, in the direction of no compromise, no willingness to make government work. Uh, and uh, it's light years away uh, away from where the Republican Party was on issues like the environment. Years ago. Yeah. Or uh, compromise about the budget only four years ago. We're very close to out of time, Amy, so give us your parting shot. Well, I uh, think that in some ways, if, when you look at the general public, there's somewhat of a backlash towards the, those kinds of uh, very strong steps to the right. On the other hand, it's, uh, it's difficult to curtail some of it because a lot of what happens is happening within the primaries uh, where the, in, uh, and then you have very strong Republican districts and states where then those people become get elected. And, and, I, and I think that um, whether or not the Democrats uh, keep the Senate, I think it's more likely they will keep the U.S. Senate, but we'll have to see. Uh, there'll be more Tea Party senators there. Uh, that's pretty clear from who's won because primaries. Because of Indiana and yeah. Right. Texas. Exactly. Yeah. And then we'll have more of that attitude of that's not compromise. Mm -hmm. It's a great testament to how effective they've been and how much they've been able to move our federal government, not to mention at the states. We are out of time. Um, thank you to our guests this morning, Theta Scotchpole, the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, and Amy Freed, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. This is a WERU Pledge Week. If you enjoyed this program, call 800-643-6273 and make a pledge. Thank you to Joel Mann, our engineer here at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. If you have suggestions for a topic or guests on a future program of Democracy Forum or to join the League of Women Voters, email us at demform3 at gmail.com or visit us at lwvme.org. You can call the League of Women Voters at 622-0256. Thank you all so much. We'll see you here next month. The
This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 